For a few years now, I've been serving on a board that has some extensive oversight with things. And as we started serving on that board, a guy named Lauren got up to challenge us. And he said something like this, you have been given significant responsibility and privilege. You have been granted a seat at the table where decisions get made that affect us all. And I've never forgotten that. You have been given a seat at the table, a place of responsibility and a place of privilege. Did you know that God has given you and offered to you a seat at the table? He has. Turn with me in your Bible or in your device to Genesis chapter 18. It's the first book of the Bible. And we're in the middle of this series called Passing the Baton, the image of the relay race and how important it is to pass the baton properly. And we're relating this to the idea of the generational transference of things between Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We read about that in Second Chronicles. We sang about it. And how important it is not to fumble the baton or mishandle it or drop it. And that for the race to be all that it should be, a proper exchange of the baton is absolutely crucial. It's the hottest, hottest part of the day. The time of the day where you look for shade. When you are able to, you find shade. It's when most of the world, even to this day, pushes pause waiting for the heat to break. And Abraham is sitting, sitting at the entrance of his tent. He's got the flap position so he can sit in the shade. And he's probably sitting there watching the heat waves shimmering on the horizon. And all of a sudden, he sees three individuals coming towards him. We begin reading in Genesis chapter 18. Now the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he is sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and may all your, you all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me give you something to eat so that you may be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought them some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. 
While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked. There, in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said to Abraham, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent. She's overhearing what they're saying, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is there anything, anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Hospitality is a sacred duty to the Bedouin. I've sat with Bedouin a few times in my life, and they will serve you, they'll just sit with you, and they'll just serve you this really, really sweet tea all day long if you want. They will host you well. And Abraham is the perfect Bedouin host. We're not totally sure when he comes to grips with who's actually sitting with him, visiting, and who he is entertaining. Maybe God revealed this to him immediately. Maybe he just suspected it when he hurries over to these three individuals. Maybe when the visitor in verse 9 knew his wife's name without being asked. Maybe when the promise that had already been reiterated in the previous chapter, in chapter 17, is affirmed again in verse 18, this time next year, you will have a son. You've been waiting 24 years at this point, and after 25 years, you will have a son. Or maybe it's when the visitor, with a capital V, supernaturally knew Sarah's thoughts. Why did you lie? Why did you laugh, Sarah, when I reminded you of the promise that's been reiterated many times starting in chapter 12 and all the way up through the story? And Sarah realizes that she's been busted and she lies and she calls and she says, I'm afraid and I didn't laugh. And God calls her on her lie. You know, people often lie when they're afraid. Don't they? Don't we? And it's interesting because as you track the story of Abraham and Sarah, we're going to begin to see increasingly that lying comes easy for them when they're in what they would consider a sticky situation. And their children are watching them closely. It's amazing to me how much children pick up. Their children are watching mom and dad closely. They see how mom and dad handle situations. And so as we track their story later, we're going to begin to see that their children and their grandchildren have lying come easy to them as well. And again, I ask you the question, what are your children learning from you? 
They see much more, they hear much more, they observe, they perceive much more than you can ever imagine. Abraham knows that Yahweh and two angels are seated at his table. And he gives them a fine meal, which again is in the tradition, the high-value tradition of the Bedouin, where they will offer you something, but then when they actually deliver the meal, it will be even better than they originally promised. He originally sort of said, you know, here's gonna, I'll give you some water to wash your feet, and uh, um, I'll give you a little bit of food to eat. Instead, Abraham has his wife bake some fresh bread. There's a fresh meat prepared from a choice tender calf, and then they're given a mixture of meat and hardened yogurt. And I'm guessing, this is just a guess, but based on my experience, it's probably an early version of what's called today mansif, which is the national dish of Jordan. And I've had it a couple of times. It's pretty good stuff. Hardened yogurt. It's going to sound funny. They take yogurt that's been sitting for a year, and they melt it, and it's put over the meat, and if they put it over some rice or bread, and there's greens, and there's olives and things like that put in. It doesn't sound too good. It's really good. And so they produce this really nice meal for their visitors. They talk for a while. And when it's time to go, Abraham, again, as a good Bedouin host, walks with them for a while to say goodbye to them and thank them for favoring them, him with their, in his tent. And the story continues. Then the men got up to leave. They looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Once again, the promises from chapter 12 that have been said numerous times, is mentioned yet again. God keeps his promises. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Abraham did a lot of things right. We're going to discover some things not so right, but a lot of things right. So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he had promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous in it? Far be it from from, from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? 
If I find 45 there, God said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? For the sake of 40, I will not do it. May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? God answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found in the entire place? For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham walked back to his tent. There are so many things about the heart of God that we could talk about in this chapter. Like we could do several messages on this chapter, but I'm going to focus on one element of it today, and this is that. We are offered a seat at the decision-making table with God. We are offered a seat at the decision-making table with God. And I don't totally understand how it works. God is sovereign. The Bible teaches us this. He has created everything there is. He controls everything. The next breath I take is because he gives it to me. The next time my heart beats, it's because he allows it. He sustains everything. And yet somehow, he allows us to pray and have some level of impact on how things play out. Now let me just be real vulnerable with you for a couple minutes. What I just laid out for you, this paradox, a paradox is an apparent contradiction. It's not a real contradiction, it just appears like a contradiction. This paradox was the source of one of three crises of faith in my life. I don't think I was ready to chuck my relationship with God, but I was in, I was scattered. And I could not get past this. I wrestled with him about these things day and night. And it was extremely difficult because I could not get my head around it. How can God be sovereign? And yet I can participate in the process and seemingly move his hand, seemingly modify what takes place, and change the direction in which he was headed. It's very clear from Scripture that he not only allows this, and this is one of the classic passages on it, and there's so many others. He not only allows it, he encourages us. He says, I want you to be a people of prayer. I want you to be a people of faith. And so I'm wrestling with the idea, if all-knowing God, the God who is sovereign and in control over all of this, if he knows how this is going to play out, what is the point of praying? Because he's going to do it anyway. Do you ever have tough questions for God? Well, this was one of the three big ones for me. And these questions, this question nearly overwhelmed me. 
How does this work? What's the point of praying? We'll come back to that in a few minutes. So I encourage you to keep listening. Yahweh and his angels say thanks to him for the meal. And they get up to leave. And the two angels continue down to the city as Abram's walking along. And God stops and has an encounter with Abraham and says, I think I will offer Abraham a seat at the decision-making table in verse 17. And the first thing we learn about prayer, the Bible is full of prayers, all kinds of places, and there's so many things we can learn about how to pray and the nature of prayer and, and the effectiveness of prayer and the invitation to prayer. And this is one of those examples where we're going to pick up a couple of things, not obviously everything, but a couple of things about prayer. And the first thing we find out about prayer in this passage is God takes the initiative. God always takes the initiative with us. In some way, he reveals himself to us. He shows us who he is. He shows us what he's done. He shows us his plans. He creates in us somehow a desire to know him. He orchestrates circumstances so we are drawn in. He allows us to read some scripture that resonates with us or hear a message. And this is what is going on here. Abraham is given by God some insider information. And God takes the initiative in prayer and invites us into a relationship of prayer. The God, and this is just mind-boggling. I use that term a lot, but it really is. The God of all the universe that created it all and sustains it all allows us to dialogue with him. What an incredible privilege to be able to sit at the table with God and have a dialogue discussion with him in prayer. And so he says, Abe, everybody, and especially me, is aware of the overwhelming and pervasive, unrepentant, ongoing, horrible evil of these places. They have been given chance after chance after chance after chance. I could go on for an hour. Chance after chance. They refuse to listen. God is more patient with them and with us than we can begin to imagine. Think about how patient he was with you and with me. And they will not listen. And even though I am... Patient beyond words, there comes a point, and they have come to that point. It's time to judge them. And I want you to notice, and you can see this in Scripture, that when necessary, God does not shrink from using fear as a way to get us serious about our faith. That's not his first option. He'd rather that we voluntarily does it. And again, he gives us all those chances. But if necessary, he will. C.S. Lewis wrote this about that. It is better to serve God out of love and gratitude. That is the high road of service. But failing that, a healthy fear of the consequences of not serving him will do for starters. Better to serve him 
from less than the best of motives than to not serve him for the best of motives. Better the low road than no road at all. The loving God, people love to emphasize the loving aspects of God, and he is perfectly loving. Understand clearly, the loving God will only tolerate ongoing, unrepentant, evil, and sinful choices for so long. Because he's holy. Because he's just. So God shares this information, this insider information with Abraham. He initiates the relationship, the dialogue, and he jolts Abraham into praying. Abraham, in the words of Ben Patterson, is shocked, perplexed, and bewildered at what he hears from God. And friends, this is entirely normal in the Christian life. Like there's, there's some of us out there that are just arrogant enough to think, I can figure God all out. Or you think somehow it's possible to figure God all out. And if you're thinking that, let me just relieve you of your pretensions. You're not even close. Not even close. There's mystery attached to God that we will never figure out this side of heaven. That's what makes him God. You know, the last... And I think I've talked about this a bit, but the last three years of our life has been somewhat chaotic. Yet in all of this, my wife does so many good things. Here's one of the good things she's done. She's written a journal chronicling the faithfulness and the activity of God in our life in the last three years. The provision of God. The absolutely precise answers to prayer. The timing that the word exquisite does not begin to cover. Where we're thinking, there's no way out of this. And I would do it this way. And then you read this journal and you go, wow, I'm so glad God's in charge because he did it so much better than I could have ever hoped to. And we just thank God as we read through things like that or recollect those things for caring for us and supplying our needs, even in the chaos. And so God initiates the dialogue. The second thing we see here is that we can be real with God. All kinds of people, oh, I could never really be honest with him. I have to clean myself up before I could even begin to approach him, and then I'll hold back. Again, let me let you in on a little secret. He is all-knowing, and he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows every thought you have. He knows every motive in your heart. This passage is an illustration of this. He knows Sarah's name without asking. He knows that she laughed when she's in the tent in her mind. He knows when she's lying. We can be real with God. Now, I understand, and this is really tough for us, that's a humbling thing. We don't like to humble ourselves. We don't like to be open. But when we're open and we're humble and we offer ourselves 
we begin to learn the idea and the depth of trust. And he invites, and we are go on this journey with him of transformation in which he makes us more like Christ. So Abraham enters into the dialogue with God, which is what prayer is. It's not just us talking. We listen and he responds. And he begins to ask God some incredibly heavy questions. And I notice as I read through the whole passage, we see this often in the Psalms. I notice that God never rebukes him for that. I notice that as Abraham is approaching God, he approaches God multiple times, modifying the prayer as he's going. And God is okay with that. We notice that Abraham is persistent in prayer, that Abraham is even tenacious in prayer, that Abraham, and it says it in the text, he's bold in prayer. He's never demanding. He's humble. He understands his position before God. I think he describes himself like ashes and something else. I can't remember the word. But he's humble in his relationship with God. He's not demanding, but he's bold. He's, not to, to borrow an expression, he's expectant with no agenda. And he illustrates for us that we are invited to keep praying about an issue. Not to just babble and chant meaningless words, and if I just use this little formula, God has to respond. It's not like that. But to enter into a meaningful dialogue with God about whatever the issue is. And someone has said, it's always too soon to quit in prayer until God gives us a definitive answer. And so we pray about something again and again and again. And this is acceptable. This is illustrated here until God gives us a definitive answer. And so he will respond in a variety of ways. He will say, sometimes he'll just say no. And uh, I don't know about you, but in my experience, frequently at first when he says no, gives me this definitive no, like I might be a little choked about that. And I'm uptight with him because he said no. But then later I'm looking back and I'm going, wow, I'm so glad you said no. It would have been a total disaster if you'd said yes. Thank you for loving me enough to say no. That's what a good father does at times, right? A good father with his kids or grandkids says no when it's the right thing to do. Sometimes he just says yes and just does it. Sometimes, and most frequently it seems to me, is he, he, he wants us to wait for a while. Or he says yes, but in a way I didn't anticipate at all and did not even contemplate that he'd go in this direction. And so Abraham is praying with God. He's in dialogue with God, and God encourages this. He doesn't doesn't put the binders on in any ways. He's listening to Abraham. He's responding to Abraham, and he starts at 50 and 45 and 40 and 30 and 20 and 10, and down he goes, and he encourages further dialogue by saying, yes, he allows his direction to be modified by the prayers of Abraham. Prayer that moves the hand of God. How does that work? We'll get back to that in a few minutes. 
There's another comment here about the heart of God. He allows the number of righteous needed to save this entire community, this uh, place that just has evil oozing from it, to go down and down and down. Don't ever underestimate what God can do through you as a righteous person. We do that. We underestimate. We think, well, there's not too many of us. Don't ever underestimate what God can do through people that are fully surrendered to him, that are full of the Spirit, that are exercising the spiritual gifts, that are acting in faith. Don't ever underestimate what a righteous person, what God working through a righteous person can accomplish. You have the ability to change the course of your community. So here I am, and I'm in the midst of this crisis of faith. I can't understand how God can be sovereign on one hand, yet allows a fallen, yet forgiven person like me to have a seat at the table. And so I'm scratching my head, and this was a long process, okay? Is God indecisive? He knows everything and controls everything. And if that's all true, what's the point of even praying? And as I, over a long process, prayed and fasted and thought about and earnestly approached this, there was three things that helped me. Three things that brought me to a sense of profound peace. You know, I was standing down here while we were singing, and I had a big smile on my face because I remembered this process, and it was such a sweet thing. The first thing he brought across my path was a quote by a guy named, again, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said this, we have long since agreed that if our prayers are answered at all, they are granted from the foundation of the world. Think about that. God and his acts are not in time. Intercourse between God and man occurs at particular moments for the man, but not for God. In other words, when I'm praying, it's happening at a point in time. I can look at time, and it's happening right now. For God, who is above time, He's, it's not like that for him. Because God is, so what C.S. Lewis, if I can understand it, is saying is God is eternal. He created time. He's in time, but he's outside of time and he's above time. And when he is making his plans and was making his plans long before any of us were ever here, he knew in advance what I would pray about that particular set of circumstances in the future and in his sovereignty, decided to formulate his plans in light of that. So even if something, if I, I don't know the outcome, but I know something's occurred in the past, and I've never heard about it before, and I hear about it now, I pray about it right now, because I know our God is not bound by time. 
That's not how we think as human beings, but I know he's not bound by time. And so the first time I hear about it, I can pray about that because he's, he's before, he's during, and he's after. So that was the first one. And uh, Dr. Lewis, the Oxford Don, helped me a lot with just that statement. The second thing was this. I began to really sink my teeth into. I knew this answer, but I'd never allowed this answer to actually touch me. I knew that part of prayer is what God wants to form and transform in my life. That the focus is not about changing the mind of God, but what about but about what God wants to change in me. And again, I knew that. I'd preached that, but it had never really got a grip in my life. Let me read a poem to you that illustrates this. It was written by, well, it was at the end of his life, but it was based on some stuff that happened to a young soldier who was seriously wounded in battle, and he spent the rest of his life with a, personal, a permanent disability that limited his movement. He was a follower of Jesus, and at the end of his life, he wrote this. I asked for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I have received nothing I asked for and all that I hoped for. My prayer is answered. What is it that you want to do in me, Lord Jesus, through this? The last thing is I realized that uh, several of his attributes from a human perspective are just incompatible, okay? He's perfectly holy, and I mean pure, absolutely holy, untainted by anything evil. He's perfectly just. His motives are always pure, and he will absolutely do the right thing. So there's these two things swirling away. But at the same time, he's perfectly loving and perfectly merciful, There's no way we can come close to balancing that stuff. But God, the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, can harmonize all of those things to work in balance without contradiction. And even though I haven't got a clue how he can do all that, and it remains this massive mystery to me because he is God and I am not, I realized I have got to humble myself and admit I don't get it. And in faith, I can trust him to remain totally sovereign 
and yet allow me to seat at the table. And friends, I've studied the theological systems. There is no theological system from my perspective that fully answers some of these questions. And it comes to a place of just laying it down and saying, I trust you and I love you and I'm going to follow you. And when I, when I did that, and when I said yes to those things, there was incredible peace. Incredible peace. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. What have you been praying about right now? What has God initiated in your life? Are you being actually real with him? Or are you just muttering some words? Are you being persistent? like this passage teaches? Are you being humble like Abraham was? Were you being bold and respectful? Are you open to being formed to be more like Jesus in the process? Because Jesus invites us to have a seat at the decision-making table. Amen.